Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by Softcat. This is a show for IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT, of course, without compromising on detail. I'm Michael Bird, and over the next 20 or so minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different area of the IT ecosystem and, of course, explain it. In this episode, we're going to be talking about social engineering, what exactly it is, who is behind it, how organizations might protect themselves against it, and what we expect to see in the future. And with me to help delve into this rather large subject matter is Adam Luca, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Security, and Darren Thompson, who is CTO of EMEA Region at Symantec. So, Darren, I guess the first question to ask is, what is social engineering? Well, very importantly, social engineering is not a new topic. Um, You know, it's somewhat new in the context of IT and security, but it's not new. Um, It's almost as old as human beings themselves. You know, many people would have heard the, uh, the expression confidence trickery. Uh, that, that social engineering. It, this is really about using um, some of the natural cognitive biases that exist in all of our brains uh, to manipulate us into doing something that we wouldn't ordinarily do. In the context of cybersecurity, that's ordinarily uh, manipulating us into giving up information of some kind, whether that be some personal information like a credit card number uh, or a password or, or something along those lines. So it's a very, very, it's becoming, has become a very, very important part of a cyber criminal's armory. So, so what about in the world of IT? Kind of specifically, what, what, how do we how do we view social engineering, or how do we define social engineering? So, social engineering is really the digital application of those techniques uh, described earlier. So, they're the those different confidence tricks used within a digital context. Um, typically, I think when most people think about social engineering in an IT context, they think about phishing. So, phishing is the application of social engineering techniques to a, to an email. Um, interestingly, phishing is generally known as a broad brush technique, so it's not targeted. It will have some level of, of hook that they're looking to achieve, but it's not specifically targeted at you. It is the mass market version of social engineering in a digital context. As you then start to think about how that becomes, I guess, more effective, but probably uh, more targeted is when you move up into spear phishing. So this is where you have profiled or you've tried to understand the person that you're attacking and you're using specific indicators or cues to get them to buy into your social engineering techniques or your attack. Um, Interestingly, this is often now seen to be focusing towards whaling, um, which is, I, I love the term. I love how a lot of this all sort of sits around uh, various fishing terminologies. But yeah, whaling. Michael, what do you think? What do you think whaling is? Um, probably getting the, it's, it's a big fish, isn't it? So getting the big boys in your organization. Yeah, 100%. So whaling is, you know, if you think about fishing, if you go fishing, you throw a rod into the, well, you don't throw the rod in, that wouldn't be very good, but you throw the, you throw the hook into the river or into the sea. You can tell I go fishing often and, um, and you, you don't really know what you're going to catch. Spear fishing is you're going fishing, but you're holding the spear and you're going to throw it at a fish or, or or a target. So you've targeted it. And the last one, whaling, you go for the big fish. So actually, it's like spear fishing, only you're spear fishing for whales. Um, and whaling is really attached to the CEO fraud. And, and uh, there are other terminologies for this, but generally uh, aligned to C-level, uh, uh, I guess, C-level members of your organization because they often have power, they have influence, they have the ability to, um, to, to, to get things done quickly. Uh, often to do with financial processes. I think there's another important um, 
analogy there, whaling is quite a good expression for the for the, the targeting the senior executives because, uh, again, I'm not a fisherman, so I'm, I'm stretching my knowledge here. But when, when we go to catch a whale, we it is a spearfishing attack. We're going after one creature. Uh, but very importantly, it can take hours and sometimes days to land that whale. Uh, and what we've seen at Symantec when people are targeted in that way in, in a spearfishing attack, um, sometimes it's months before the criminal reaches their objective. Uh, but they are very, very persistent. They will try and try and try and they'll t- try lots of different avenues and vectors and, and uh, attack surfaces and social engineering techniques to, to reach that goal. And that is that is like a, you know, a whaling a, a whaling. It's quite fish. an interesting thought, isn't it? Multiple boats, multiple yeah, actors, absolutely. multiple avenues. Uh, I think interestingly, the CEO fraud piece is, is particularly useful uh, or particularly effective. And, and actually, it's a little sad as to why it's effective. Uh, do you, have you got any ideas, Michael, why you think it would be effective? Is it because the CEOs tend to not be quite so savvy, but they have all the power? No, interestingly not. Um, interestingly, the CEO fraud relies on the fact that in most organizations, sadly, CEOs aren't that visible. And actually, you don't expect to question them. So you don't challenge a CEO. If you receive an email you genuinely believe to be from your CEO, your CFO, you know, you may have never met that person in your life. You know, you may have met them once at a company do. And your only communication you have over them is via email. You have no pattern for their typical behavior, their mannerisms, the way they might interact with you. Because for want of a better term, they're in, you know, in the ivory tower. For a lot of traditional organizations, you get an email from the CFO that says, make this payment. Are you going to email back and go, oh, excuse me, can you just validate that you are the CFO? You just you do as quickly as you can. And exactly. And th- that's exactly what they're trying to leverage, that pressure and that lack of personal relationship or the lack of the ability to challenge. I think, interestingly, the other side of this is less to do with email and is more to do with more of the, the malware and uh, ransomware style. So... Uh, we you think about Trojan horses, you know, and everyone knows the story of the Trojan horse. Well, that, you know, to some extent is a, a social engineering attack. You have presented something as something else that you want to click and download. You want something for free. And actually, therefore, you're going to run a piece of software that otherwise you wouldn't choose to download and run. So again, that is another form of social engineering. But that is less playing on the pressure of trying to extract information and more playing on your own greed or your own desire to get something that otherwise maybe you shouldn't have. That's bordering on bait. Just so, so explain that one a, a bit more for me then. So h- how does baiting work? We just continue the fishing analogy. So, so you know, the, uh, the, the the more tasty a morsel we put on the end of our hook, the more likely it is that something's, somebody's going to bite it. I mean, uh, my favorite baiting example is to do with uh, memory sticks, actually. Um, you know, we've, we, uh, we do vulnerability assessments in organizations and we, we've been known to do things like put, um, you know, a, a, a bucket of memory sticks in a reception with, with a sign indicating that everybody's free to take one they're free and we know how useful they are so have one branded with the company brand on them and all that kind of stuff and of course as soon as these people put the memory sticks in their laptops they find that they've uh, they've just downloaded some malware and we have control of their keyboards but yeah so it's just it's just presenting somebody with something that they want ideally free of charge uh, and sometimes that can come in a software form um, encouraging them to to take the bait and uh, so, so that we can fish them so so where does social media fit within all of this as well So I think social media is the willing form of social engineering. We are choosing to distribute our information out there for potentially an exchange of value back from us. You know, we choose to put the data out there and share our lives. Um, But I think interestingly, we need to become more aware of where that data is being put and how that data could potentially be used against us. And that's ultimately all about digital literacy. 
But interestingly, I think when you look at a lot of young people, and there have been some studies on this, actually they're less bothered about data privacy. So, so who's behind it, and and what's their motivation? Well, I'll uh, I'll let Adam sort of chip in here as well. But but you know what's interesting from our perspective at Symantec is we've seen a, a you know a major maturization, or if that's a word, of of the cyber criminal themselves. So ten years ago in this field, we were we were largely talking about individual hackers uh, making a nuisance of themselves. You know, sometimes financially motivated. Um, but fairly small scale. Now we're talking about a plethora of cyber criminal, everything from you know the teenager messing around in their bedroom right through to very well-funded gangs of cyber criminals who are sometimes politically motivated, sometimes even state-sponsored, uh, sometimes gangs and, uh, of criminals you know, programming teams of upward of 100 people uh, creating these very, very sophisticated attacks. What's interesting is we're starting to see the social engineering technique taken more seriously and those criminal gangs recruiting psychologists as opposed to computer scientists to combine those skills, you know, with the computer science skills you'd expect. So you're saying there's kind of these like two elements for the um, uh, for, for expertise. There's the, there's the kind of cybersecurity element and the, and the psychologist element that, that the uh, criminals or the people who are trying to attack are, are using those kind of people. What, what is it they're going to get from them? It's quite interesting. You know, 25 or so years ago, when I when I was early into this industry, I was always taught that, that a good project or a good program would consist of technology, process and people. Um, and I think all we're seeing here is that the cyber criminal is starting to understand that recipe as well. So so for some time now, they've been investigating and inv- investing in technology and that's malware and everything else that's utilizing software, for example. Um, you know, process is pretty important. Um, you know, they need to know how they're going to go about their attacks and how they can repeat those attacks to best effect. Now what we're seeing is the people piece coming in. This is criminology in social science terms. Um, so we are dealing with, you know, uh, criminals uh, who are attacking other people, other human beings, uh, and will do whatever it takes uh, to reach their end, whether that be to do with process, technology, or people. And so I think this is just a maturing of an industry, if you can if you can, you know, term the, the cyber criminal fraternity as an industry. It's just maturing uh, in the same way that every industry matures. Uh, but from a, a cyber defense perspective, that, of course, makes our job all the more challenging. So... Uh, are Semantic also employing psychologists? We are actually, yeah. So, so you know, many of the people listening to the podcast will be aware of some of the moves in security and IT generally in, in terms of machine learning, for example, and artificial intelligence. That's really all about data, and it's all about typically data about people. And so, to do those sorts of things, we have to combine the 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 science, the computer science type capabilities that we have with social science capabilities. For me, what's really interesting is in our research labs, which is the bit of the organisation that's that's th- thinking about what software is going to do in three to five years, a higher and higher percentage of those uh, of that, that staff, of that group of people, uh, are actually now psychologists because they're thinking about how can we defend ourselves from social engineering attacks? And to do that, you've got to understand the psychology of that. Okay, so what can an organization do to protect themselves? So let's break this apart. We talked about three distinct areas through the podcast. We talked about people, we talked about process and we talked about technology. And let's look at them sort of individually. So people first. So we need to implement a set of controls that really focus on the human element of this attack. So number one, 
get your phishing simulation sorted. Actually expose your users, place them inside realistic looking scenarios and let them start to understand what an attack looks like, what is the components of it. Actually, you know, use those gamification techniques to engage the users to want to take part in these exercises. I think far too often uh, these things are one way video content, deliver some content down. It's not particularly interesting. It's sort of click, click, click through, which is exactly the uh, type of behavior we don't want them to follow in social engineering attacks. And it's exactly the way our learning platform typically are working. So that simulation is really useful. The other part of the people piece is just a cultural awareness. Having signs up, making people aware of the current threat level, making it engaging. Actually, I think a lot of this is now very interesting. It's timely. It is it's of the moment. And, and people do want to know more about cybersecurity, whether that be in their own life, but it, you know, in their day-to-day -day, uh, working within an organization. The, the final thing I think I'd say about people is that we want people to understand that failure isn't a bad thing. While we're putting in controls that we want people to fail, we need to learn from our failures. So actually advertising failure is, is something that should be uh, undertaken a lot more. I think at the moment, security and, and potentially security incidents are a backroom sort of thing. They're, they're things that happen behind closed doors and, and none of that good knowledge is shared with anyone. So the sharing that knowledge makes everyone better. You can never take the attack back, but you can always learn from it. So onto process. Process is really looking at how can we engineer into a high risk activity checks and measures that stop some of the traditional social engineering attacks. And this is going to be looking at, you know, number one, starting by identifying what are my high risk processes and what are the users that take part of those high risk processes. Create a culture of asking for help. Actually, don't make this a thing where people can't ask for help. If they are, have any concerns, actually make it very easy for people to reach out and speak to someone and actually just validate what's happening and, and actually start to look at what does good look like? Um, there's no point looking at this problem through the lens of an IT security professional or even an IT professional. Take a normal person, take somebody who isn't particularly IT literate and actually look at how they're going to interact with the systems and processes and actually say, is this acceptable? Am I asking them to do something reasonable to make a good decision? And I guess really the last area is technology. For me, I put this at the back. This is really at the back of the queue, so to speak. Technology is 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 a very useful asset, but it is one only one facet of this problem. Um, we're looking at organizations starting to implement fraud checks on email. So this is a, a technology that will look at building models of who typically interacts with the organization, look for typically fraudulent domains, look for things like typo squatting, and which is a process where someone has slightly altered the domain, um, where people have used Unicode characters, which actually, you know, potentially is very difficult to actually start to see the, the difference between those domains, even if you bothered to actually look behind the, uh, the identity. Also then start to plan for failure actually start to plan what happens if my users did get fished, if they lost their credentials, how can I apply other security controls that will uh, protect, protect against that? Especially where people are using passwords on multiple different sites, you know, password hygiene still isn't as good as it probably should be. So actually, how can you use things like multi-factor authentication to implement additional security controls that expects the user to potentially have lost their identity, to have lost their password? Um, and probably the last one from a technology perspective is, is URL proxying. So not just trying to inspect the actual email and the, the content of the email for potential phishing indicators, but also proxying those links that will take them out to uh, sites that will then harvest their information. Yes, yeah, so I think you've covered all three bases really well. As I travel around your Middle East Africa, engaging with CISOs and security organizations within even the largest, most mature organizations, 
if I look at the maturity of those three pillars, if you like, that we've been talking about, you know, typically those organizations are pretty technology obsessed. Um, they've, they've spent a, a decade purchasing tools. Um, some are doing a better job than others at integrating those tools and making those tools talk to each other and be useful. Um, but probably more importantly than that, there has not been even nearly enough focus on process and certainly not people. The second thing back, back to technology is um, at Symantec, we're encouraging people to build comprehensive uh, platform technologies for cyber defense. And people often ask me, where where do you start? Because there's so much out there. And the answer for me is pretty simple. If I'm building security architecture, I worry about, again, the weakest links. I worry about where am I most likely to get hit? And also, where can I do the most good? Where am I most likely to pick up on the fact that something bad is happening? And in security architecture, there's a, a concept of what we call termination points. And uh, termination points are really just where your data momentarily stops. And in security, what that means is we can do interesting things with that data. We can mine it. Uh, we can do deep packet inspection in, in networking terminology. And despite all of the changes in security architecture over the last decade or so, there, there really are still only three places where our data can terminate. The first one is at the messaging gateway. And that talks you know, to email, something that we've brought up in, in, in the context of, of phishing attacks. The second one is at the web proxy, um, so so where we can you know, terminate inbound and outbound traffic to the web, and and the third one is the endpoint, where of course you could argue is the ultimate destination for the criminal themselves. So I would I would encourage people on that technology piece um, to to really think about building a comprehensive architecture and start with those three areas because if you've got those covered, you're more than likely going to pick up on a breach. You're more likely to do, be able to do something prior to the breach causing major issues. Um, and uh, you, you're well on your way to building something that's comprehensive uh, as opposed to sort of very specific and narrow. So let, let's look to the future then. So what, what, do we, what do we expect to see in the future? I think interestingly, I guess a good area for the future to talk about maybe is, a, is around actually how some of the ransomware attacks have migrated. You know, one of the, the key things I think we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months is actually rather than now charging for access to your data, actually they're using social engineering techniques to get you to spread the malware yourself to two or three of your friends. How's it doing that? So literally they, your, your PC or your service will become encrypted. And actually, they will say, "Okay, hey, you, you know, you can pay us five hundred dollars or whatever, whatever the going rate is for Bitcoin at that point, um, or you can choose to basically send this file to somebody else and get them to install it. And if two or three people basically sign up via your affiliate link, then all of a sudden your PC gets given back to you for free. You know, essentially relying on on social engineering for you to socially engineer your friends to get your data back. I mean, they won't be your friends afterwards. Well, they don't have to know it came from you." <laughs> Yeah, Michael, don't open any emails from me. My, my computer's <laughs> locked at the moment, so um, I'm looking for two unwilling uh, victims. So anything else? What, what do we expect to see then? So anything else? Any any other developments from the technology industry or the security industry that we, we expect to see? I guess the other one to consider is that just around the identity barrier, as you, as you move to a sort of a distributed uh, application model as your services start to run in multiple locations, potentially multiple clouds, uh, different types of services, SaaS and, and PaaS and IaaS or, or whatever that looks like. You no longer have NAT, you no longer have a firewall, you no longer have your bastion and your, your home, your castle. So really all you have left is the ability to say, I am Adam Luca and I am allowed to access the system. And that identity barrier is very important. So 
as that becomes more and more important, the the amount of effort put into this social engineering and, and that sort of manipulation will be greater and greater because actually I don't need to compromise your computer anymore. All I need to do is compromise your identity. Darren, I mean, you must see that a lot where people are using other people's identity to then to gain greater credibility. So potentially compromising a, a low level employee or an administrative employee or somebody with a relationship and then using that to step through an attack. Is that something you guys are seeing? Yeah, we, we do see uh, some of that. Um, you know, PAs typically, uh, although have a, a fairly low level of access uh, in, in some ways in terms of the data sets that they're specifically responsible for, they, they will often be given the password and the credentials of their boss. Uh, which of course, you know, completely, uh, com- com- completely uh, mitigates the, the, any any sort of uh, risk they were trying to sort of get rid of in the first place. So, so that that sort of thing is happening. I mean, I, I think um, there's a couple of things um, that I'm concerned about moving forward, and, and they're to do on both the good guy side and the bad guy side. I think what we're going to start to see on the criminal side in the short term is more and more attacks that are what I would refer to as living off the land. So so not particularly sophisticated on the technical side, uh, but quite sophisticated on the social engineering side. Uh, the criminals are starting to understand that whether their attacks are sort of a ransomware paradigm or they're a Bitcoin mining paradigm, whatever it might be, they can get the job done pretty much with the tools that already exist that are out there. Um, and with some social engineering, they can, they can get the job done. So I think we're going to see in the next year or so, we'll see more large-scale breaches. And when we when we dig into them, just like with WannaCry, um, we'll see that actually the technical controls, the basic technical controls just weren't in place, and that was, that was taken advantage of by the criminal, but actually it was the social engineering that got the job done. I think in the medium to long term, those intersections are going to start to come into play. So... Um, what might be a scenario there? So I guess mass social engineering, um, you know, how, how can fake news, for example, be propagated across uh, massive amounts of people leveraging an analytic that has been learned about those people? Uh, that's where things start to get quite scary. You know, uh, if we're talking about sort of nation state sponsored type attacks there, um, you know, politically motivated, uh, manipulating, uh, you know, voters, for example. Um, I think we're going to see more of that in the future. And again, that's really a coming together potentially of, you know, IoT, our data showing up everywhere, everything we own is connected, social engineering, how do we get access to the data in the first place, an analytic capability, what do we know about Half a, million, half a million people, for that's, example. That is super scary, um, isn't that, it? That's, that's, I think, where the world's going. Now, that's the negative side. On the positive side, it's it's a very, very exciting and interesting time to work in security right now. Because for all of that bad stuff that's going on, and actually, if I think about those intersections that I mentioned, social engineering, IoT analytics, we're doing all of that as well. So if I think about what Symantec Research Labs are doing, for example, in the area of AI and machine learning and deep learning, but think about how we're starting to leverage the huge amount of analytics that we have, the global threat landscape, and mentioned earlier, some of the things we're starting to do in psychology, some very, very exciting things that I think are going to shake this industry up uh, and actually put the criminal on the back foot as well. So um, to summarize... Yeah, so... 
I guess we've covered a, a, a wide range of different topics here, but I think ultimately what what really we we're trying to say is that social engineering is, is really now the key component to most attacks that we're seeing these days. It is always going to be a at least a, a minor component, but in most scenarios, actually, it is the tip of the spear. It is the first point or the first entry that a threat actor gets in your environment. And if you can stop that first entry by a combination of technology, as we described, design and making sure that the processes are good, but also making sure your users are well-educated, that they understand that the threat and that they can really act as your as your human firewalls. Actually, what we can start to do is we can start to stop those attacks before they get into the technical landscape. And if we start to stop them before they get into the technical landscape, their chance of succeeding is massively reduced. I think the other thing really to consider for, for sort of everyone listening here is thinking about how you're using your own data in, in your own world, you know, what are you doing? How are you making sure that your life is secure? Because as much as this is a show, uh, geared towards enterprise IT people. Actually, everyone, when they go home, takes their hat off, is no longer an enterprise IT people. They are a normal person. And these types of data and, and these types of techniques are being used against us a lot for, for good, for bad. And actually, how do we start to give ourselves that level of awareness, that level of street smarts, that level of critical thinking that makes sure that we come at these things with a logical and clear head that we are not manipulated? I guess I, my, my challenge to anyone listening is, you know, have a think about the digital services you use today and, and the, the very old paradigm is you know if if you don't pay for the product you are the product and are you happy with that and are you happy with the the data you're giving up to these organizations excellent well uh, darren and adam thank you so much for your time today thanks for coming in it's been uh, really interesting hearing all about um social engineering from both of you um, if anything has piqued your interest um, around social engineering, um, do check out the show notes. We'll include lots of links about some of the stuff that we've talked about today. And there's also a link uh, if you want to get in touch with someone directly at Softcat. So you've been listening to Explain It from Softcat. Thanks for listening and goodbye.